The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I am very excited to be with you tonight to get a chance to give what's called a way-seeking talk. And that's a description of how I found my way to this mindfulness practice. Um, And I'd like to know a little bit about you before I get started. So for how many people is this their first evening to practice meditation? Is there anybody here for whom that's true? Okay, how many people have been practicing for a year or less? And how many people have been practicing for quite a while? A number of years. Okay, great. I'm really glad to have the breadth of practitioners here. Um, So one of the things that was a wonderful opportunity about getting the chance to do this talk is that it allowed me to pull together the threads of my practice and my life and look at them together, look, look at my life through the lens of meditation practice. And um, in doing so, I was really amazed to realize how the seeds of freedom from suffering coincide with the suffering from the time I actually, what I noticed was from the time I was a child. There were some beginnings of freedom, even then. So um, the thing that I noticed was that, you know, within our lives, the causes and conditions of suffering can flow from one event to the next, but they can also flow from one generation to the next. So I was struck by how that multi-generation multi-generational flow of causes and conditions of suffering and family tragedies caused me as a young child uh, to make certain choices in trying to find an end to suffering, to emotional pain. And in trying to find those solutions, I developed conditioned habits of mind, ways of thinking about the world, that actually led to further suffering as a teen and an adult. So it started early. And I tried and exhausted a lot of different solutions to that suffering. They didn't work. So by the time I reached adulthood, I've become more and more fiercely determined to try to find an end to that pain. And that has eventually led me here to IMC. So where this began, you know, who knows how long ago it began, but um, my parents each had suffered devastating loss when they were young children. So my dad's dad died when he was six, and my mom came home at age seven from school to find her mother dead on the kitchen floor. And those events uh, really caused a great deal of suffering for them. In the 1920s, people didn't particularly know how to help children with grief. That was the era of children should be seen and not heard. And so um, they dealt with it as best they could, but really brought that suffering into their adult years. And when they met and married, their goal was to create the family that they never had 
You know, they each missed a parent and hadn't had the experience they wanted. So the, they did form the family they never had, but the consequences of their early childhood pain sort of rippled into that family as well. So um, by the time I was a young child, um, my mother was suffering conditions that are termed schizophrenia, psychosis, so she was suffering a great deal. And today we might call some of what she was suffering complex trauma or the results of complex trauma that she had been through. But they were unnamed when I was a young child. So um, I just felt from an early age that something was really wrong. And um, I, I kind of felt neglected and that led me to conclude that there was something wrong with me which was a very unhelpful belief that I carried into my teen years and into my adult years. So as I awoke every morning, day after day, to hear my mother arguing angrily with her auditory hallucinations, um, the way that I reacted to that sort of is an interesting snapshot about how we as human beings tend to suffer. So... Um, the Buddha defined three characteristics of conditioned phenomenon or ways that we habitually get into suffering. Um, that they, you know, conditioned phenomenon are unsatisfactory, that they're impermanent, and that they don't contain any fixed self or fixed substantiality. So I was focused on the idea that what was happening in my life should not be happening instead of seeing simply that it was what was happening. And that's an example of a habit of mind that perceives things as unsatisfactory. And even the habit contains its own unsatisfactoriness. I, I was convinced that my family was just stuck in being wrong. Um, and it felt like that was going to be that way forever. That's just who we were. And that's an example of not seeing that things are impermanent. Um, I thought it was that way. I was that way. We were that way. In fact, I thought that all this was occurring in some way because my family and I were inadequate. That was just our nature. And... Um, I could not see that there was no set way that we were. There was no fixed self. I sort of had a fixed, unwavering idea about myself, that I was not an okay person, and that it was my problem to solve that. So there's a theory in psychology about children that they develop... Um, at first in a, a very egocentric way. And that term is not used as a judgment. It doesn't mean that we're criticizing kids. It means that they are necessarily focused on getting their needs met, their fundamental needs, because they're dependent on adults for their very survival. So it's pretty natural that they need to be attuned to that. So they, it's possible for kids to make a, an error in thinking, an early error in thinking, which is called a cognitive error. 
and in a, that you know because their world in a sense revolves around them that the things that happen around them are therefore their fault in some way so in trying to bring suffering under my control I made that error and I blamed my misery on myself or somehow I took it out on myself if bad things were happening because I was somehow not okay I had some hope of fixing myself and stopping the pain from happening so the truth that I couldn't control all of that was so anxiety provoking that I I'd rather blame myself in a way and you know I didn't know that I was doing that it took me a long time into adulthood to sort of figure out that that's actually what was happening um, there is a sutta of the Buddhist discourse on the not self characteristic I mentioned before conditioned phenomenon have no fixed self or no fixed substance and in that discourse the Buddha asks one of his followers is what is impermanent what is painful since subject to change fit to be regarded thus this is mine this is I this is myself and the follower answers no so this was what was going on in me I was convinced that it was mine it was me this was myself and I had to fix it so I tried to use thinking to end my suffering and I think that's a common error that many human beings make when we encounter unsatisfactory things in our lives we believe we can think our way out of it we can solve it we can make life completely satisfactory and completely free of suffering if we just think hard enough so um, I tried that <laughs> and my my father was very child-centered and he communicated quite clearly that he loved me and that he believed in my abilities which was great um, and he was my role model and he was also trying to use thinking to overcome his suffering so he uh, endured a lot of hopelessness and despair in the face of my mother's illness in fact it, it went unnamed until my sister my, one of my oldest siblings reached the age of 18 and, and figured it out and said hey you know I think what's going on with her is actually an illness that needs to be treated but um, in the, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there weren't very effective medications or very effective treatments for this set of conditions. And we didn't have a very big income. So my mom remained ill for most of my childhood and teen years. And in fact, uh, you know, there were brief periods when they would try this treatment or that, but they really weren't very effective. Um, until my later life when actually they developed some pretty good medications that provided her with some relief from what she was going through from the psychosis and the hallucinations so but what what I came to as I prepared for this talk was that I realized that in seeing my parents suffer 
I can now see that there were sort of the early seeds of freedom for, from suffering for me. Um, that was present too. So first thing I noticed was I really felt their suffering. I felt a lot of concern for them. And I tried to never do anything wrong that would add to their suffering because I could see, you know, how difficult life was for them. So in a way, that was an early experience of morality, trying not to add suffering to my own life or to the life of anybody around me. And morality, or how we behave in the world, is actually a very important piece of how we find freedom from suffering. If we can behave in ways that we don't have to question or think about later because they feel right, then we don't suffer as much. It was also an early experience of compassion, the effort I was making not to need anything and not to ask for anything. Because I could see that my dad was really burdened and really exhausted just trying to keep a roof over our heads and put food on the table. So I wasn't about to add to that. And that's actually an early experience of compassion. Um, in fact, after my dad died, I found that he had saved an essay that I wrote as a kid. We were given a class assignment, write about what brings happiness. And my essay was about that the way that you found happiness was by giving to other people. So interestingly enough, here I was a little kid, and there were the seeds of generosity. And generosity is another way that we start to find our, our way towards the relief from suffering. So there it was, already present as a kid. At the same time, I was continuing to deepen my suffering. So I was working really hard to try to please the adults and other people around me. You know, if I didn't say the wrong thing, then my, maybe my mom wouldn't have another psychotic outburst. Um, I sort of conditioned habits of self-suppression in trying to please others. And emotions were way too painful, so I suppressed those really well. I got really great at suppressing emotions. So um, what I learned later is that it's very common in households where there's a member of the family suffering from mental illness for the other members of the family to lower the level of emotionality in the household. That's a, that's a kind of group survival thing that happens. Um, so to suppress my pain, I relied almost exclusively on thinking. Um, I tried to learn and understand and know as much as I could about the world and try to figure out how it worked and how I could fix myself and fit into it. Um, later on, you know, I still struggle with this attachment to knowing, like knowing just the right stuff is going to help me not suffer. Um, I also noticed that our family was different from other kids' families, which is a habit called comparing mind. And that also leads to a lot of suffering, um, comparing yourself to other people. And in that case, I was concluding there was something wrong with me. Um, so I had an attachment to a fixed view of myself as wrong. So that's another clinging, you know, that led to more suffering. At the same time, you know, I was having these little things that were helping me early on, and I didn't even realize it, 
start to come towards this practice. Um, when I was 13, I discovered an important element of mindfulness without even knowing that it was called that. And that is the power of attentively noticing something. So when I was 13, I had cramps. And I decided that pain in the body was a signal to the mind. So the thing you had to do was take the mind down to the pain. So I practiced taking the mind down to the cramps. And lo and behold, the pain went away. And, you know, it would come back a little while later. And so I, I thought, well, okay, if it comes back, just bring the mind back down to the pain as many times as you have to do it. And the pain would disappear, and then it would reappear, and then I would bring my mind down to it, and it would disappear. So um, I, I sort of saw it as being like a ringing telephone. You know, a ringing telephone wants someone to answer it, right? So I was answering the ringing pain. And it worked, so it's, it's similar to the way we bring our attention back to the breath again and again. But in this case, it was bringing attention to pain again and again. So, you know, I practiced that skill for decades before I ever heard of mindfulness. So, you know, this is another example of like looking back at it now. I'm like, oh, wow, where did that come from? So um, I think in the ways we survive our suffering among the unskillful things that we do that add to our suffering, there are also skillful elements. So the thinking that I was doing led me to get good grades, I got scholarships, I got to go to college and study graphic design and make a living with problem-solving skills, which of course I was big on by then, and also art, which I loved. Um, so. And those studies provided another experience that I look back on and I think, oh, that's interesting. So um, we were given an assignment to do an illustration of the perfect day. And I came back with an illustration of four identical frames of a woman sitting very still in a chair. Except the fourth frame, she was surrounded by this colorful glow. And the professor asked me what that had to do with the perfect day. And I replied, well, the perfect day is one on which the conditions around us don't change. Our attitude of mind changes and transforms how we see the world. So there it was, staring me right in the face, liberation itself, but it took me another four decades to find my way to mindfulness practice. So um, meanwhile, I was entering adulthood with conditioned really strongly conditioned habits of self-blame, working intently to fix myself any time an interaction with another person brought about any discomfort or pain. And I was really conflict-averse. I was suppressing my feelings. And that led to my doing more than my share in some aspects of relationship and being too passive in others. So... I developed a habit of trying hard not to need anything, so that went, that became going along with what my friends wanted and pushing down my own emotions and needs to so much, to such a great extent that it was hard for me to see or, or experience that I had certain unpleasant emotions. So when people would talk about anger, I would think to myself, oh, you know, I don't have that. I'm not an angry person, I don't have that emotion. I must just be free of anger. Well, you know, I couldn't see that I was directing all that frustration of unmet needs and, and unrecognized emotion inward 
against myself in this crusade to fix myself. So one of the major pieces of work I've had to do in meditation practice is to learn to recognize and just be with my emotions, all of them, including anger. Um, so this, this not recognizing what was going on actually showed me as I was preparing this talk how those three characteristics I brought up before um, unsatisfactoriness, impermanence, and no fixed self, how those three things can lead to what are called the three unwholesome roots of suffering, greed, aversion, and delusion. So delusion was present in my not even being aware of unpleasant emotions or unspoken needs. That's delusion. Aversion was present in avoiding interpersonal conflict. I would do anything to avoid unpleasant, unpleasantness. And greed was present in greed for approval. I was really, I really, I overworked trying to please other people and I think in some way, without my even thinking it, that was kind of a bargain to try and get love. So if I got that, if I worked really hard, I would be worthwhile and I would be okay. Now, interestingly, we live in a culture that supports the three unwholesome roots really well. So the, the roots of suffering, boy, overworking, needing to know, having theories and explanations for everything, thinking too much, needing to control things, that is really highly rewarded in the field of high-tech and graphic design, which is the field I entered. I was a designer and a design manager for high-tech companies. So um, in the 70s and 80s and 90s during the high-tech boom, um, companies were really happy to have employees working 60 to 80 hours a week and sort of ignoring other developmental needs. That was great. <laughs> so that was going on. At the same time, my older brother, Patrick, uh, started to practice Zen Buddhism. Um, he was the firstborn of our family, and he, he grew up without any explanation for what was going on with my mom. Um, so as he got into meditation practice, his suffering and his emotions came to the surface. And pretty soon I was getting phone calls from my sister-in-law um, worried about my brother because he was demanding complete silence in the house. He was sitting for hours without, you know, and sort of ignoring his needs for food and exercise. And um, it, not only was this not what she wanted in the house, you know, from the two of them, but also she was seeing a change in his formerly easygoing, fun personality. Um, anger. He was starting to have bursts of anger. And in one of those bursts, he actually put his fist through the wall. Well, this was so not my brother. Um, so uh, she convinced him to see a therapist, but he was only superficially compliant with that process. And it turned out he was flushing away his medications. And we didn't, we knew, you know, he was going through a change, but none of us realized that that was leading towards tragedy. So I adored my, my older brother. He was kind of the sibling pioneer in our family. And I had learned a lot from him. So I felt that he was probably on to something with the practice of Zen. I, you know, I could tell he was exploring something really interesting. 
But unfortunately for him, his intense practice unmasked, unmasked repressed memories of childhood abuse by a neighbor. And um, following the session, the Zen session he went on in which he recovered this memory, he came home and he ended his life. So uh, since then, I have heard it said that in the early days of uh, Buddhism coming to the West, the Eastern teachers really underestimated Western self-loathing. It's a problem we have that apparently not as many people in the East suffer from. So even though um, his guiding teacher at the Zendo had tried to encourage him to sit less and, you know, ease up a little bit, he was extremely self-critical. And um, so in his case, self-loathing and despair had lethal consequences. And so what, what I'd like to say about that is that for some of us, psychotherapeutic support while we're going through this practice is an essential part of the path. Um, I've really appreciated the care that's given to retreatants at Spirit Rock here at IMC and at the Insight Meditation Society where, you know, when you fill out an application to go on a retreat, they ask you if you have any psychological issues that you're dealing with. And they care about retreatants and they watch them very carefully. So things have changed a lot and, and I think that's wonderful. Um, what, you know, my family sort of blamed Zen for my brother's death. They thought maybe it was some kind of cult. Um, but I knew my brother well enough to sense that he was really curious and really trying to heal in doing that practice. So. I didn't think Zen was responsible, and his interest in it was kind of evoked a lot of curiosity in me. Um, to try and make sense of his death and my parents' suffering, I did a couple things. One was I uh, got psychotherapy for myself, which ultimately led to a teacher whose practices and guided meditations ultimately led me here. And I also resolved that I would not succumb to despair in my life. I had seen what happened to my brother and my father. So I had spent by then 25 years overworking as a design manager in high-tech companies. And after, their, after my brother's death and, and several years later my father's death, um, design work kind of lost its meaning for me. I mean, it's still lovely work, but... The world didn't seem to need from me another beautifully designed product or brochure or spiffy website. So um, I started to explore ways to be of service and um, especially to children and families who had gone through suffering like my family had. So in doing that, um, I developed an interest in art and in healing and I met a person who is today a member of IMC at that time. I don't think she was, but Carla Brook, who some of you may know. And um, Carla, I was asking her how I could do work with uh, healing and families, and she mentioned a number of organizations, including CARA, which provides grief support for organizations, children, and families. And so I went through the volunteer training to become part of CARA, 
And um, I worked with children and families who experienced suicide, homicide, drug overdose, because that was my way to try and make sense of the suffering I'd been through. And if possible, help alleviate suffering that other families were going through. So when I was at CAR, I met lots of wonderful people, including people sitting in the audience here. <laughs> and um, I met Jim Bronson and Nick Ross, um, and eventually, and they were also members of the mindfulness community. And I became a member of the CARA staff. And what I saw in Carla and in Jim and in Nick was just a presence and a way of being in the world that it felt really good to be around. So that got me curious because over the years of working with them, they would periodically mention some place called Spirit Rock and um, retreats, whatever those were. And um, eventually IMC, 10 years ago when it first opened its doors, Jim was saying he had been doing a little construction on this place called IMC. And so I was getting more and more curious about how, how they had these traits you know, that made them so present and so... Uh, kind and so great to be around. So over the years, I um, started to be exposed to various things. I had this therapist who did guided meditations, and um, I, uh, Carla recommended Jack Cornfield's book, A Path, of, A Path with Heart. And I read that and started doing some of the practices in it on my own. And I started reading Pe Pema Chodron's books. And so... I didn't know much about the practices, but I thought I'd try them. So there's, there was a practice called loving-kindness that was described in which you, um, you know, hold in your heart yourself and then a mentor and a friend and a, a stranger and then difficult person. But I didn't know all that. I just knew that the phrases were, you know, may you be healthy, may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. So I was having trouble with one of my colleagues at work, and so I, I said it for me, and then I said it for him, her, and then I said it for me, and then I said it for her, me, her, me, her, me. And then suddenly it dawned on me that w what was going wrong between us was our similarity. You know, there were similar problems that we both had. We had a lot in common. So I was like, wow, this loving-kindness thing really works. It's really great. And then reading Pema Chodron, I read about a practice called Tonglen, which is breathing in um, pain or suffering and feeling the real texture of it, so personal pain or suffering. And then breathing out relief to all those around the world who suffer that same thing. And I noticed that really helped too. So I was getting more and more intrigued with all of this. And so January 2004, I decided I was coming to IMC. And so I started coming to Sunday sittings and doing day-longs, and I went to a retreat that Gil taught, or I went to a day-long that he taught about loving-kindness and learned, you know, the procedure that's taught. Um, my first uh, retreat was Labor Day 2004. I went to a Pema Chodron retreat at Spirit Rock. We spent the whole weekend just noticing pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And so as I sat there in a tent in the field at Spirit Rock, and it was super hot, and I was right next to other people, like felt like this, <laughs> flies crawling on me, I was like, oh, unpleasant, <laughs> unpleasant, <laughs> unpleasant. <laughs> but, you know, then I was surprised, wow, you know, I can actually be with this stuff that's unpleasant. You know, from somebody who was good at suppressing, Unpleasant, that was a pretty big discovery.
Um, a few months later, I did a four-day retreat with Gil, and then I, you know, later I did seven days, and so I kept going to retreats like that. And one of the things for someone like me who overworks all the time or has overworked all the time, one of the gifts that came with this was that I just allowed these things to naturally draw me in. So I never tried to force like anything to happen, but I just, when I felt inspired to do something more, I would do something more. Um, I sat kind of inconsistently at home. I found that hard. And meanwhile, my suffering was becoming more and more apparent and more and more acute for me. I I could really feel it. So at times, my therapist, who was actually a deeply experienced uh, Dharma teacher and practitioner herself, would tell me to sit less. And, um, you know, having known about what happened with my brother, I realized that it doesn't work to overdo or to force practice. So I heeded what she was saying. But I was really, I was, you know, engaged in this pattern of overworking and trying to earn love and blaming myself. And I couldn't, I reached a point where my suffering was so acute that I couldn't see a way out of the pain. And one night really felt like I was going to choose suicide. So I was pretty scared that it, felt like all my options were gone and that was it. And I told my husband. But fortunately, he knew me well enough to not, you know, think that I wanted to be hospitalized. So I went to sleep that night, woke up the next morning, and realized I could really choose that at that moment. I I really could do that. But suddenly I realized that I had this choice and that if I did that, it would bring an end to all possibility. All healing, all possibility would just be done. And suddenly I realized that that was not something that I wanted to do. You know, it, it sort of helped me to see that having that level of emotional pain is maybe the equivalent of the physical pain you might experience if you broke your leg, broke your femur. You know, it's the mind's way of telling you that something needs to come to an end. But it's not, it wasn't my life that needed to come to an end. It was suffering itself that needed to come to an end. So um, I was still kind of under that cloud of sadness when I headed to uh, Spirit Rock for 16 days to a loving-kindness retreat followed by a Vipassana retreat. And so um, I practiced at that loving-kindness retreat very seriously and intently. And we were encouraged to add our own phrase to the end of the typical phrases. So I had added the phrase, may you love and accept yourself just as you are. So I was sitting outside the, the upper hall at Spirit Rock. There's this beautiful curved slatted wood bench. And I was sitting there intently saying, may you be healthy, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be peaceful. May you love and accept yourself just as you are, just as a bright blue lizard popped up between the bench slats. And I said, may you love and accept yourself just as you are. (laughs) And the minute that came out of my head, I burst out laughing. I was like, of course, there wasn't even any question for the lizard that he, you know, loved and accepted himself as he was there. That wasn't even, it didn't even calculate. So... The lizard 
existed. The planet supported his life and that was enough. And suddenly it dawned on me, it was no different for the lizard than it was for me. And um, the clouds of suffering parted and what really surprised me was that under all of that was pure joy. I was shocked. I didn't know that under the suffering there was joy. So this really uh, helped me and my practice continued to deepen and I got opportunities to go on longer retreats and, you know, six-week retreat in Massachusetts and really um, have been allowed myself to be more fully pulled in and um, practicing, I, I've developed a regular practice at home and I continue to use not only regular uh, mindfulness practice but loving kindness and also gratitude practice, which both of which I found to be very helpful to kind of overcome a depressive cast of mind when that pops up or kind of a sour, you know, aversive feeling. Um, and I've really enjoyed practicing here. Um, part of what drew me here, not only the colleagues I mentioned, but also that uh, Gil's background was in Soto Zen, which is the practice of everyday life mindfulness, and that Andrea Fella, who teaches here, was doing daily life practice um, retreats and days. And so um, it's a continuing inspiration to me to uh, bring myself back as frequently as possible to mindfulness throughout the day and just make that the core of what I'm doing, trying to live uh, more continuously from a place of mindfulness, being aware of what's going on. And the work that I did at CARA and now in, in therapy has given me these wonderful moments to, to see these seeds of you know, awakening that I talked about before, these seeds of freedom um, in young people and teens and adults alongside their suffering. So clients will say things like, you know, they'll spontaneously come up with things like, you know, I feel a lot better when I just stay in the here and now and I don't worry too much about the past or future. I've had 15-year-old teens tell me that out of nowhere. Or, wow, I feel a lot better when I'm in nature and I just, you know, watch what I, I'm seeing and hear what I'm hearing. So people who are healing find these mindfulness practices. And um, that work with kids has encouraged me to, to lead the groups, a couple of the groups for kids here. And it's been a real pleasure to witness their awareness of um, mindfulness or how they construe it, what they know about it. Um, and so through all this process, I've really learned to appreciate the heroic efforts that people make not only to survive but to overcome their own suffering, all the different solutions that people try, and then um, realizing that some of the solutions that we find actually contain the seeds of freedom from suffering. You know, that that's, come, that's traveling alongside from the time we're small all the way to adulthood. Um, and it all helped me see how, you know, not seeing those characteristics of unsatisfactoriness, impermanence, no fixed self, lead into greed, aversion, delusion, and more suffering. Um, you know, as we try to make life ever satisfying and make pleasure permanent, and, you know, create some 
fixed self for whom we can give all the credit for all that great stuff, we just deepen our, our own suffering. Um, and all the while it may be that the seeds of our own awakening are traveling right alongside. You know, sometimes I feel like it's so close to us, it's touching our skin. And we just need to turn and be aware of it. So um, I hope that this story and my reflections are useful to you in your practice. And we have a few minutes left, so I'd invite your questions or comments or whatever you'd like to share. Yeah. Um, could you wait a sec for the microphone? Because we'd love to have everybody hear it. Thank you for your talk. Really enjoyed it. Do you think there's any hope for us who are still living and working in the high-tech world? Absolutely. <laughs> what, what can you say about that? Well, you know, I don't think high-tech caused my suffering. I think I brought my suffering to high-tech. And um, I've noticed that there are uh, groups of people that are more and more interested in this. I went to a conference uh, in the last year called Wisdom 2.0 for Youth. And it was a day about, you know, it was parents grappling with the fact that technology is a fact of their child's lives. You know, 4,000 texts a month is not unusual. And how can we have that and have our kids grow up um, and not suffer from it? So, yeah. Yes, I know I have a 16-year-old at home. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, thanks. Have you noticed the 4,000 texts? Yep. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so the comment is it's even more painful when they're on the unlimited text plan. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's interesting. Technology itself is not the problem, but a lot of suffering can happen on technology or off of it, right? Oh, Maureen, sorry. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about what you do with the little kids in your, in your Dharma Sprouts program? Oh, sure. Um, well, the Dharma Sprouts is for kindergarten through third graders, and they come with their parents. So I do a variety of different things. Um, we do things as simple as listening to the bell and noticing, trying to notice all the sounds contained in the bell listening to what's going on outside and around us and seeing what we can notice. And kids will say things like, I could hear my heart pounding and I could hear an airplane going overhead. They're amazing. Um, I do mindfulness of the body things. So we did one a couple weeks ago about feeling different characteristics of the body, hardness, softness, smoothness, roughness, coldness, warmness, um, you know, uh, and the kids really tuned into that. So I take them through the same kinds of mindfulness we do, mindfulness of the breath, and then we do different games um, and exercises that are all about how you take that mindfulness into other activities, you know. Uh, draw 
a picture of all the things in, going on in your heart or just there's a variety of things. There are mindfulness games for kids. When we were experimenting with the hardness and, qual- and softness qualities of the body, we did a game from Spirit Rock called Spaghetti Dance where the kids lay on the floor and you invite them to be hard pieces of spaghetti and then turn the floor into a boiling pot of water and invite their parents to be the cooks and and test for doneness by picking up their leg or arm and dropping it. And meanwhile, their job is to soften, 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 soften. So, you know, there are games like that. And then um, my partner in doing it, Carla Reasich, sings these wonderful songs. Betsy Rose has written a lot of Dharma songs for kids, and we sing those together. So it's fun. And then the older kids' group, Dharma Rocks, we, do, we spend a longer time and we do more elaborate things. Um, this last weekend, the kids invented their own mindfulness games, including one in which two kids were it and they were fire. And when they tagged anybody else, they became fire. And we saw how fast fire traveled through the room. And, and we also did an exercise of 25 jumping jacks and feeling all the sensations in our body and then sitting down for five minutes and noticing what happened during those five minutes. So, gosh, it's endless. And the kids really understand a lot. I think maybe we understand more when we're little and we lose it along the way. <laughs> so, thanks for asking that. Yes? Well, I really enjoyed your talk. Um, thank you. Um, I just wanted to say um, it was like, really validating to hear like somebody's process of finding like their mindfulness practice and, and really kind of dealing with the suffering because I think everyone's on, on their journey and at times, I, you know, my myself, at times it just feels like, you know, when is it going to happen for me? And sometimes I'm like, I think too much and I think we have a tendency to do that. So it was really... Um, helpful to hear like your process and how that worked for you. So thank you. You're welcome. I'm glad that was helpful. Very inspiring. Yeah, I mean, you know, it can when we're going through it, it can feel like Sufferfest 2012. <laughs> you know, but it it changes over time as you continue to practice. It improves. Well, it's been a pleasure to um, be with all of you, and thank you so much for your practice. Have a good evening. <laughs>